Good evening, everybody. The title of this talk is uh, Hate is a Failure of the Imagination, which is a quote from Graham Greene. This is the opening paragraph of a semi-autobiographical novel called Shantaram, which is uh, written by a uh, drug dealer from New Zealand who became a fugitive and went to live in the slums of Bombay after he escaped from prison. So this is the first paragraph here. It took me a long time and most of the world to learn what I know about love and fate and the choices we make. But the heart of it came to me in an instant while I was chained to a wall and being tortured. I realized somehow through the screaming in my mind that even in that shackled, bloody helplessness, I was still free. Free to hate the men who were torturing me or to forgive them. It doesn't sound like much, I know. But in the flinch and bite of the chain, when it's all you've got, that freedom is a universe of possibility. And the choice you make between hating and forgiving can become the story of your life. And he goes on uh, 900 pages after that. <laughs> and it is kind of a long story um, with sort of making that choice again and again and making a life you know, with that choice. And, but I think that there are people who've experienced uh, this to that depth. And even some of us um, in the retreat today, I mean, we, it's not actually in the basement of some dungeon somewhere, but there are times when we feel like we're very much up against the wall in our minds and things become very tight, very painful. And how do we learn to open and to forgive ourselves or other people? This is the place of metta practice to train ourselves and educate ourselves, first of all, that we have this choice, and second of all, kind of the art of how to exercise it in different situations. It's not just a sort of Buddhist choice, it's kind of a very basic human right and human capability that's often obscured. The title of this novel is Shantaram, which means man of peace. It's the name that this sort of criminal chose for himself as he decided to become a sort of a slum doctor and all kinds of other things. When I read the review of the book, I was interested in it and they said, um, it was so clearly really about his life that they, the, only, the main criticism they had of it was why didn't he just say that it was his autobiography instead of calling it a novel. So this kind of transformation and choice that we make um, amidst conditions that may not always be of our choosing is something to do not just once but many times, something that won't happen um, as a miracle in one seven-day retreat, but developing a kind of habit of being, both with metta and vipassana, a mode of approach to life, a way of life that's satisfying in itself. It's a training and a development of the mind moment to moment. Sort of to say to ourselves that there's a choice and a possibility, may I be safe, may I be free in my mind. It's also possible that living in this way, uh, besides sort of being a radical change in itself from the sort of untrained mode of life, that radical changes and kind of abrupt revelations also become a possibility, not just a possibility, but a likelihood.
this idea of training our mind in the sense of kind of training our emotions and our intuitions and our sensitivity is not, um, it's also overlooked in our culture. It's not like we're here sort of in law school training ourselves to reason and to um, master a body of case law. But it's something about kind of learning to alter our basic responses to things, ways that we get triggered, how we see what a person is, how we think about ourselves. And that's why sort of the repetition is so important. It's kind of like a very deep form of adult learning. Um, <laughs> it was part of the allure of Buddhism for me that it had kind of a body of techniques that you know many religions contain uh, messages about love and um, I tried quite a few different things that didn't necessarily transfigure me. <laughs> um, I'm still, I'm not, I'm still work in progress, <laughs> I would say. But metta is called a, a guardian or a protective meditation, and one of the things that it protects us against is the habits of our untrained mind. Um, the mind sort of naturally kind of just picks up a lot of garbage and sort of adopts it and makes a shell out of it, like one of those kind of um, bugs that live at the bottom of a pond, you know, that they kind of put stuff over themselves. Um, you don't really see the bug inside. One of our friends is a translator. He's from Argentina, Gerardo, and he translates for llamas from um, Tibetan into Spanish or Tibetan into English sometimes, and he kind of likes to schmooze. And he was telling me about one uh, long tour that he took with a very prominent old lama named Talung Setral Rinpoche, who had somehow fallen into the clutches of a kind of disreputable pseudo-monk, you know, who wasn't really a monk, but dressed in monk's robes and somehow had a lot of money and a lot of followers who was semi like this weird, like sorcerer type character who the, the Tibetan guy was fairly innocent. And this guy said, well, I'm going to bring you to the U.S. for a big, huge tour, you know, and we're going to go to 10 cities and stuff like that. Then um, he took one of the first places they stopped was Chicago. And um, this kind of weird dude um, had a mansion prepared for the llama to sleep in. And they were taking out all the mattresses and putting them in the sun and having them deodorized. And the Swami was saying, you know, these high beings, they're so sensitive to vibrations, you know. And Gerardo said, um, actually, these high beings are protected and they're much less vulnerable to those kinds of things than a normal person because of their compassion and because of their wisdom. Um, and unfortunately, on the tour, hardly anyone showed up to see this guy. And, you know, he's so, uh, he's such a sort of spiritual heavyweight that, uh, that his entourage was quite surprised because very little PR. The whole thing was a complete mess, you know. And so I said to Gerardo, well, so what happened? You know, he left his monastery, he traveled all this way, he saw kind of tiny crowds and weird people like asking him questions about the astral plane and, you know, nothing, nothing about compassion, nothing about wisdom, everything about magic. And Gerardo said, well, you know, these guys, they're kind of beyond that. They, he didn't care, you know. He said this in Spanish, se la pasó. You know, it wasn't like he felt like he had to be treated like he was important. It sort of didn't work out, and he went back to his monastery. Fine. So <laughs> that's what we mean by protection of the mind. Like it didn't become a big deal to him that he wasted his time doing this thing. Um, whatever he could do, he did, and whatever he couldn't do, he couldn't do. So may I be safe. May I be free from danger um, outwardly but also inwardly, and I feel like the inward part is the most important part. Um, 
the sense that we can make a choice inside ourselves about how to relate to our experience really opens us to a limitless possibility. Our outer possibilities have limits, um, but our inner possibilities do not. And I think that we can survey the world and see that the, mass, the vast majority of outer problems are caused by the inner enemy of the mind, inner enemies of the mind. Fear that begets fear, that begets violence, that begets hatred, that begets separation, that begets all those things. Most of it based on ignorance that there is a better way. Our Burmese teacher, Sayada Upandita, said, he loves to sort of go on and on in these kind of intense ways. He said, of the outer, thinking of the outer enemy which exists, he says, the outer enemy and inner enemy, if you contemplate it, the inner enemy is far more fearsome, disgusting, dangerous, and dreadful. (laughs) And also that this is what distinguishes a yogi or a meditator uh, from a sort of quote unquote common person, that this recognition is there, that the main problem is the problems of the mind. Although facing the problems in one's own mind, it can often feel like repairing your car as you're barreling down the freeway. (laughs) And it's often easier to think that someone else is the cause of all my problems. (laughs) So as we move through metta practice and tomorrow take on the enemy as our object, I think that I wanted us all to look the real enemy in the eye tonight and get clear about its nature and who it is, what it is. In that first metta phrase, may I be safe, um, it means may I be free from enemies, may I be free from the inner enemy. The second one also, may I be free from the sharp and angry, uh, painful feelings that torture the mind. The mind without these things is clear and open and is a place of safety. And as Mark was saying in this talk about the hindrances, these things are visitors. They're kind of more superficial Um, and that it's kind of our way of perceiving them that's at fault with uh, many of our grievances outwardly and inwardly and how we don't really quite know how to disentangle ourselves. This subtle process of freeing ourselves, it's kind of like you're wrapped in like many tangled kinds of ropes and you take them off one by one to find the inner core of the mind that is free. One time a critic came to the Buddha who was uh, disgusted by his philosophy and sort of was um, railing against him and saying a lot of nasty things about him and his movement and stuff like that. And afterward, um, the Buddha said, said to the Buddha's monks were all bothered and said, like, man, that guy was horrible. You know, like, how did you feel about that? Like, he really was pretty insulting. And the Buddha said, well, um, if someone gives you a gift and you don't receive it, then who does it still belong to? <laughs> Whose is it really if you don't take it in? Um, One time I was very concerned about something um, sort of interpersonal and I went, um, I was in Los Angeles with a friend and we went to a Vietnamese temple where there was this kind of old guy who had decided he was really afraid of death. So he left his wife and became a monk and was doing a practice of prostrations there. He was used to be the state engineer of Kansas. He was kind of, he was, and he wouldn't let his wife, she wanted to come be a nun too, but he wouldn't let her come. (laughs) But anyway, so I started asking, I asked him my question. I thought, well, maybe he's wise and maybe he's not. So I said, what, what do you do about when somebody says something to you and you sort of like, you start carrying it around and it really rankles and um, you can't quite let go of it. 
And he looked at me and he said, sort of in this kind of like red faced way, he said, Mu kwa ah. And I said, What? And he said, Mu kwa ah. And <laughs> like, what? And I said, Well, what does that mean? And he said, That means you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, how did, did it affect you? And I said, no. And he said, well, the next time someone calls you an idiot, just pretend, just think, <laughs> In other words, you know, like, don't let it, <laughs> don't let the inner enemy get a hold of those statements. I mean, also, also as a writer, right, I have to learn how to take criticism sometimes in a constructive way, you know, something that in the end is going to help me, you know, it's not sort of, you have to learn something between like, oh, I really stink, and the sort of my way or the highway, you know, there's something in between the two, which is that, <laughs> what? <laughs> I stink or the highway, that's right, both. Well, they kind of, they're sort of related. <laughs> But to be able to say, like, maybe there's something I do need to be free of or something that could be helpful to my work and make it better um, rather, and not take, you know, anything that's said kind of against oneself and down into the, you know, sort of the chute that goes down into the coal cellar that catches on fire and becomes like hell for weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> so may we be free of the inner enemy. Sharon's book has a cart she cites the cartoon where um, Linus comes to Lucy and um, is at where she has her little advice sign, you know, what, ten cents or five cents, free five cents, yeah. And um, what? Charlie Brown. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe you should tell it. <laughs> tell this part. I know. I'll get, well, this is a, this is a an indication of the accuracy of the rest of the talk. <laughs> so. <laughs> My pain-addled state. <laughs> so Charlie Brown comes up and, you know, he has all the issues and stuff. And, and um, she sort of thinks about it for a while and she says, well, Charlie Brown, the problem with you is that you're you. <laughs> and he says, well, no, so what can I do about it? And she responds, well, I don't pretend to be able to give advice, but I merely point out the problem. <laughs> So I think a lot of us feel that, that there's sort of this very deep-seated and unexamined belief and identification with um, the enemy of kind of inner anger or lack of self-worth. Um, and Lucy actually, in the, it, you know, from one point of view, she's like the most horrible inner critic you could have. And if you think of it in the loving way, the problem of you is that you believe that you really are limited by all these things. She sort of takes on the characteristics of a Buddha. So our ego kind of forms when we're very small, and it's not really in our control how we build it. Um, my psychoanalyst friend says that the theory is that, you know, when you're lying there in bed and you're completely helpless and you need something, and your poor mother cannot do every single thing to please you, and you know, even if she tries, like even if you had the best mother in the world, there would be something that she couldn't help you with. And at that moment, you form an inner object to sort of suck on to take care of yourself, to think that there's something there to hide from your own like terrible vulnerability and that the ego's actually formed in that way out of fear. Now, of course, it's always helpful to have a kind of reference point or a handle, like when someone wants you to get out of the way of a moving train or something, or they can call your name or, you know, 
tax you or whatever they need to do that you know there's something there that you can refer to but there's aspects and folds within this thing that we call ourselves that um, do not need to stay in their original condition. I mean, I think we sort of think of developmental psychology up to a certain point, and then Buddhism and spirituality take you to another place that's a lot far beyond needing to have to carry this uh, same me around. And it's sort of as if, um, without having kind of the right information and training, it's as if like, we're sort of like a, one of those couch potato people that lies on the sofa all day long eating chips and watching televisions and your ego and your personality or your sense of yourself becomes very obese and sick and doesn't feel very good. <laughs> so I'll eat anything, right? That's me. Um, <laughs> and coming to a place like this is sort of like coming to a detox or something where you are sort of your mind gets good food and sort of proper exercise and this sort of meta practice that often can feel so grueling is like saying like, okay, let's do some reprogramming here. Like, how should I relate to myself? How should I relate to other beings? What are the possibilities of life? And it's like being also given correct information about who we are, sort of the laws of operation of the mind and heart. If we sort of go along with them, we can lead a much happier life. So recognizing and making available that love is a truth deeper than, a pla than where violence can reach and that this goodness or this capacity to love within ourselves can actually be nurtured and be made to grow and can kind of take over our mind for periods of time. It's sort of, it is work to do it, but it's as if you have a seed or some yeast. If you kind of keep it in the freezer, it will never blossom. But if you put it in the right place and put it with some other ingredients and kind of knead it and bake it and heat it, um, it will become edible. So that we need to be taught and told that it's safe to love ourselves and it's safe to love other people and that it's okay to be who we are. One of my Indian teachers had a um, metaphor that we're all like as if we were lions that had been abandoned as cubs and raised by a family of donkeys or something like that. And so that we always think that we're a donkey <laughs> until suddenly we look in the, and we've been taught to be afraid of lions and stuff like that. And then we're drinking at the stream and we see our own face and we're like, yow! <laughs> I'm not really a donkey. I'm much more powerful than that. But how do we learn to see that face instead of the Charlie Brown face? The philosopher Bruno Bettelheim um, wrote a book about how, you know, the even the concentration camps could not take away people's freedom to love one another and that there were stories of heroism in those places. Or our own kind of native sage of the United States, Martin Luther King, um, saying, we shall overcome, we can overcome. A criminal can become a man of peace and we can find love for ourselves in our hearts and we can find love even for our enemies in our hearts. And that this will protect the mind. It's not that it's going to make us more vulnerable to being attacked. Looking in the outer world now, you can see that that is not the prevailing wind. Martin Luther King said this, to our most bitter opponents we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. 
but be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win our freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. So inwardly and outwardly, may we win this victory. Similarly, there's the um, Buddhist statement. King has said many things that are very similar to this, that hatred is never transformed by hatred. Hatred is only transformed by love. So would it be enough to be able to love ourselves and others with compassion and with empathy and without shame? To be able to be a true friend to all beings, a true friend to ourselves. In this practice of metta, when we come to the more difficult person, this is potentially the most liberating place, freeing us from judgments and feelings of disempowerment and deep fears and old wounds. It's as if we've been here kind of training and exercising our mind and preparing and generating some strength. It's exercises at the gym. Now the trainer says, all right, 20 pounds more. (laughs) Take the enemy as your object. (laughs) But even so, it's kind of like you have to be careful um, when you practice with the enemy. And that's why I said to select sort of that it's, it's not necessarily the person. It's the inner enemy that's the issue with everyone. So how do you choose the person um, to be your enemy tomorrow or tonight? And some people have already uh, been working, uh, getting ahead of the class (laughs) with this. Um, And the difficult people have come in or difficult aspects of the beloved people also have come in. But um, one way of choosing the enemy is who do you not feel like sending your loving kindness to? or who seems like they're responsible for a lot of problems for you. Um, The famous person, like someone to whom your thoughts often return. I was thinking, I had a fantasy this morning that suddenly we would have a building tomorrow full of bush lovers. (laughs) It's this pulsation coming (laughs) up from here. When I was first doing this practice, this also shows my age or something, that I had Ronald Reagan as my enemy person. And I was sort of enthusing to my sister after a retreat, um, and I said, well, one of the ways that I, she said, you know, how can you, like, love him? He's even so ugly, and um, (laughs) and he's so bad for everyone and everything. And I said, well, I visualized him as an infant, and that wasn't even enough, so I had to visualize him as a fetus. (laughs) And I said, you know, and it became this revelation that everyone was once upside down in the dark and all curled up. And she said, well, he still is. Well, if you look sometimes at a public figure or a leader or someone who's quite distant from you, it's easy to kind of pick them apart and see how they're boxed in by fear or um, what's kind of behind their anger and their violence, um, their blindness or their fear of attack. And talking about how fear causes you to uh, lose perspective about things, um, you know how we all have to take off our shoes in the airport now? (laughs) Aren't we glad that um, the shoe bomber didn't keep the bomb in his pants? <laughs> and then you have to all like, <laughs> you imagine having to take your pants off. <laughs> all right, sir. <laughs> like, are these the measures that are really going to help us um, be safe? <laughs> 
When you're thinking about someone who does seem to be spreading kind of like mass problems uh, as your object, it's helpful to kind of just wish that they would be ultimately enlightened and liberated. It, that's kind of uh, one of the points of working with an enemy that makes it kind of easy. Um, it's not necessarily that then they'll be nicer to me, but that generally they'll be nicer and more helpful if they actually knew what to do based on love and compassion. It doesn't mean that you start to condone the behavior of your enemy, um, but may they find their most essential loving self. May they be freed from mental pain and anger. May they know what to do. May they create conditions for themselves. May they meet supportive conditions so that their best qualities can come out. As the proximate cause of metta has been said to be kind of finding what's good or lovable in a person, when you come to the enemy as your practice, it's not always easy to do. And it also doesn't mean that if someone has been harmful that you're sort of trying to gloss that over or not admit that there's been harm done. But this is where the title of the talk, that hatred is a failure of the imagination, it's that there's so much nuance and complexity in every person that it's possible and to hate the deed and not the doer, to hate the inner enemy and not the person. This is one of the places where wisdom practices and metta practice intersect because there's not really one solid self. If the inner enemies were removed from any one of us, then we would all be liberated and free, enlightened and loving. It's um, the technical definition of metta is just absence of hatred. So when you remove those adventitious defilements, what's left is perfection. So it's, it's just a process of taking out the impurity. Sometimes it's helpful to find or think of that person's soft spot, just recognizing that they're a human being um, and that they've had you know, reasons for becoming the way that they are. To think about their emotional troubles um, and e not necessarily that we have to equate them with our own emotional troubles, but that we at least know what emotional troubles are. Sometimes um, it's helpful to think that there must be something that they love and that they really do love. Um, Chugyam Trungpa said, everyone loves something, even if it's only corn chips. <laughs> it's also true that everyone under the sun has a shadow, and that um, just as we learn to love um, someone who we might find difficult to love. There are parts of ourselves that we find difficult to love, and this can become a reciprocal process that's very healing inwardly, still without condoning sort of really harmful behavior. So there's the public figure. There's also someone sort of at the medium distance, like someone whom you wish might not have gotten a raise at work or something like that, someone who isn't really doing their job and yet sort of sucks up and gets promoted. <laughs> Um, how can you wish that they would be happy and that they would enjoy their pleasant circumstance? Um, but maybe as a beginning, like what I usually do is I pick a trivial and petty dislike. Like for me, there's a lady in my neighborhood who has a white German shepherd who, that looks like it belongs in a junkyard. It's very dirty all the time. And it's <laughs> it bit my dog when it was a puppy, when my dog was a puppy. And the owner said, Oh, he gets mouthy with the passive breeds. <laughs> well, my, I had to actually 
and my puppy was on a leash and I, I, he was upside down and screaming and I had to drag him out by the neck to keep this dog from like biting his head off. <laughs> she passes by my house quite often. She puts a political poster on my telephone pole for a cause that I really don't agree with. <laughs> She's part of this group that's been besieging Cambridge City Hall with that same unpopular cause. <laughs> And at one point I decided that this is what is really the worst. I decided that I was going <laughs> to try to be nice to her because I didn't like kind of having her in my mind that way. So I said hello to her for a few days and she looked right through me like I didn't exist. So with her little sour puss. <laughs> so I guess I'm her enemy <laughs> too. <laughs> she doesn't like me either. And it's kind of funny, like every time she goes by, my neighborhood is briefly transformed into the hell realm. <laughs> She's there like that. There's that awful person so when you know and it's not like she's a big deal to me you know I actually really do not like her um, and it's kind of you know there's an aspect of it where I sort of say like I, ha I enjoy a certain maliciousness about her like when she goes by like my partner will often say there goes that monster the horrible woman <laughs> we both go to the window and we look <laughs> and there she is <laughs> and he and I bond together like oh we hate her don't we hate her <laughs> you know but it really when I start to try to work against this trend, I realized that there was some actual real dislike and unpleasantness in my mind toward her and that I had a real solid barrier between myself and her that I didn't even, I, you know, it felt like it was about 80 feet thick. So um, I started to think about her from the point of view of um, did I want her to be happy? and. I kind of did. I mean, I didn't really want her to be chopped up into little pieces or anything like that, or, you know, die of a wasting disease or anything like that, no. And I thought, you know, that she probably does have emotional troubles just like me. She seems to have the same similar amount of sort of economic things as me. She likes dogs. And I like dogs. Um, you know, and I started to be able to visualize her smiling. And she's actually kind of pretty when she smiles and stuff like that. And it, after kind of doing this for a while, this drop of loving kindness appeared in my heart, like, you know, just a drop of delicious melon juice. It was such a, it was sort of like, you know, like when you're hungry and there's, it's almost painful that the drop of saliva comes into your mouth. It's like that one squeeze of something. And it started to change. Like, I still don't really like her. Um, and I don't feel that by sending metta to her, I'm giving her permission to go on being mean to me, but, um, visualizing her smiling and happy and healthy in her kitchen and happy with her dog and kind of pleased and satisfied and having a good relationship with her boyfriend brings me happiness, actually. So my relationship with her is transformed. And it's interesting because it's kind of love without liking. Um, I don't, and I've sort of said to myself, I don't, I don't have to like her. I can, I can love her, but I don't have to like her. <laughs> So this brings to the point of saying, like, what does it mean to love your en enemy? You know, does it mean to um, really let them stomp on you and sort of that you're giving them permission to go ahead and be who they are? Go back to that notion of the inner enemy and say that it's fine. It, you know, we're really actually against the inner enemy. <laughs> we could, it's okay. Um, we're strongly against the inner enemy and we defend ourselves and we defend other people against the activities and the damages that are caused by hatred and greed and delusion and ignorance. There's a story of the Buddha um, who was giving teachings to, the, to this cobra who had bitten bunches of villagers. I think this is kind of a, like a Jataka mythical tale, but um, there was a 
big bad cobra outside a village, and some of you have probably heard this one. And it had killed, you know, lots of people, men, women, and children. And it happened to hear one of the Buddha's sermons, and it felt bad about its activities and decided that, um, you know, it wasn't going to bite anyone anymore. And so people would go by it, and it would kind of like, and they would say, oh, there's the horrible cobra, and they like stoned it half to death, and it kind of limped, or whatever, half-dead snake would limp to crawl to the Buddha and said, you know, like, look what's happened to me, you know, like, I've become nonviolent, and now, you know, I'm just being tortured, and the Buddha said, well, I never told you not to hiss. <laughs> so, um, with metta sometimes. It's necessary to say what's ne- what needs to be said. Uh, also, Upandita said this in our last retreat. He said, loving kindness and compassion often means that you have to say something to someone that, well, you know, it's necessary for things to be confronted, and wisdom makes you not fear the consequences. Again, often metta is sort of the best defense. Um, beyond that point. It's like sometimes you think that just sort of biting back is going to be the thing that makes you feel better, but um, I've been on hold a lot during this week kind of waiting to try to talk to a doctor and get a prescription for pain medication for my back, and it's been this kind of weird thing to be like in this sort of needy place where I'm in pain, and they're like calling people, and they, they seem very sadistic, like you know, like, of course we're not giving you pain medication over the phone, you know, you addict, you, <laughs> and, and they, some of them, see, I can't tell if it's me being really needy, or them kind of being, rejoicing, and being able to tell me I can't have what I want, you know, um, so today, finally, you know, I finally got the whole connection, and I sort of realized that one, of, I was starting to really want someone to just, like, listen to me and respond in a sort of human way. And the person that I got, I did speak to the doctor and this sort of whole thing started to happen. And then I ran up against the Massachusetts law of like they can't send a prescription to the Berry Pharmacy. But the person, she was very harried, you know, and she was really viewing me as like one more thing that she had to do amidst all the things that she had to do. And I think from having done Meta for a while and wading through like my own kind of psyche all this week, I could see her being reactive in ways that I know that I'm kind of that way too. It's like I just, just, I don't have kind of whatever it is, the inner space to really be very generous with the person. So at some point she said like, I was trying to think like, what could I do? Is there anything I can do to sort of get what I want here? And, and she said, I'm going to have to put you on hold. I have an emergency call on the other line. So I was on hold for quite a while listening to this soothing music. And <laughs> And I thought, you know, like, I had a chance to sort of get through the sort of my initial desire to just hate her and view her as another one of those people who's, you know, really being bad to me and stuff. And I thought about her and how she felt, and it was so clear, you know. Um, So when she came back on the phone, she still told me she couldn't give me what I thought, what I wanted. And I said, well, thank you, you know, you sound like you're really busy, and I know you've tried to help me. And she said, something kind of sweet, like a little musical note entered her voice, and I realized that, in a way, I had started to create the situation that I desired. By giving metta to her, I got back um, the same thing, rather than sort of just being demanding and putting her in the position of, like, well, you give me what you want or I'll hate you. You know, it's like willing to give her a little bit, and it came back. After the first long um, metta retreat that I did um, here at IMS with um, Upandita, I went on a trip in Scotland with my best friend where we rented a car, and we drove all around and stuff. And, you know, being somebody's best friend, as many of you know, is not always easy. You know, it has its kind of ups and downs. It's um, like that. And 
I experienced myself kind of just being able to be a different way in, the, in that relationship that I liked much more, where it really felt more less fraught and more like the friendship part was overwhelming the, the sort of difficulty part. There was one point where we had pulled off. We were going to look at some site, you know, and roads in the British Isles are sort of very narrow, as people who have been there know, and people go really fast, and it's all on the wrong side and stuff like that. And um, she got out on sort of the long... I was driving, so she got out on the side where there was the grass and stuff. And I started to try to get out on the same side because it didn't seem safe to walk out into the highway. And she slammed the door in my face, <laughs> you know. And I, I experienced both sort of the reaction that I would have had and the reaction that I did have, which was that she didn't see that I was trying to get out on that side. And I also experienced that I would have previously thought, like, what is wrong with you? Like, I'm trying to get out, you know. Like, why did you do this to me? It wasn't, that's the sort of the problem with you is that you're you. It's like it wasn't really about me in that moment because I had been practicing sending not only the goodwill, but also kind of my attention to other beings so that I think I became kind of more sensitive to what's actually going on with other people. So uh, the power of kind of generating these wishes can also really help you to become sort of more responsive and more um, kind of insightful in how you deal with people and treat people. And it helps you be treated well in return. And it also is good if it isn't faked because people can tell that. But it kind of creates a little bit of a longer fuse or sort of that fourth dimension of response that where you, the automatic kind of conditioned habitual thing doesn't come up in the same way. There's room to sort of even say that maybe we don't know some kind of open space. Thinking about like, well, we know those mass destruction weapons are there, so let's attack them before they attack us. It's kind of similar in the larger world. I have a friend who collects things and takes them to Bolivia for poor people, like hearing aids and glasses and stuff like that. She's a stewardess, and so she gets free like cargo space on American Airlines. And so one time she was taking this uh, shipment of wheelchairs there. And like Bolivia is a really hard place because it's very cobblestoned, and the pavements are terrible, and there's holes in all the sidewalks, and you know if there is a pavement and stuff. So the wheelchairs are very precious and stuff, and they're big, and they take up a lot of space. So maybe she was taking six, you know? And so this woman comes in, and she's, like, walking, and she's 40 years old, and she said, I came for my wheelchair. And my friend said, I just looked at her and said, like, you know, like, you completely don't deserve a wheelchair. You can walk. And then she said um, she found out that this woman's father had lost both his legs in a mining accident, and this woman had been carrying her father on on her back for the last 10 years. (laughs) So it's like you don't always know what someone's story of pain may be. Um, so to just respond to people with a little bit of understanding that there's kind of pain in every life, even in the life of your enemy, there's pain. And in the stories of all of the people here at this retreat, each one of us has had our share. Some have had more, and some have had more recently, but everyone has had something So metta is kind of a way of using our imagination to retrain the way we imagine ourselves, the way we imagine and believe our world to be. So now to go to, um, if we want to choose a kind of thick relationship with an enemy, like if it's someone who's caused you some real pain that you want to work with, and Sharon's probably terrorized that she's going to have to (laughs) sort of give instructions for this, like... But what happens, you know, like when someone really has given us suffering in our life, like 
it's necessary to open to that, to be able to open to that pain. And sometimes if the relationship is one that's ongoing, it's hard to know kind of who's the owner of the pain because sometimes there's pain kind of between people, even if you love them very much or even if you're very strongly connected to them. It's sort of this mutual thing that um, we've been wounded by someone and we've wounded them in return and it doesn't seem to be, you know, like going to be over anytime soon. Or that we still, you know, much as we try, and, you know, in the loving relationships that we're in, we honor the attempts that we make to learn about the other person, and yet it's kind of um, complex. There's sort of the, if you look at your inner world, the sort of painful areas often have a certain person at the center of those battlegrounds. So thinking about what is it that's behind or beneath or within all of the hurt and the anger and the fear that we may feel. Like if we look often just behind that place, we find a kind of real soft and tender part of ourselves. Like the place that's shattered is also soft. So is it possible to love from within those places? where one has been wounded, I think it is possible. In fact, the kind of love that comes out from those complicated places is often very wonderful and very human. It's kind of like join the human race. Sometimes if it starts to get very difficult with that, you can start to pretend that you're able to love in a way that you don't think that you really can. And pretending is a very valid activity in the metta practice because Um, we're stretching the boundaries of how we define ourselves and how we define other people so that we're kind of going beyond what we are used to thinking ourselves to be capable of and to be willing to work at it. Um, Sort of that saying that love is a verb. It's not necessarily just a given that it will be there, but that we keep saying the phrases and we keep listening to the meanings of the phrases that may you be happy, may you be well, may you be free from inner enmity, May I also be free of those things. May I be free of mental pain, physical pain. May the circumstances of our lives support us. So thinking about working at it, um, as we've all been doing, we can take the example of people whom we know or have heard about who have overcome those obstacles of pain in their lives Sort of, um, it's, al- it's always easy to go to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who's kind of like the Lance Armstrong of loving kindness, <laughs> winning the, t- the Tour to Loving Kindness 90 times in a row. <laughs> um, and one of our friends, or the, one of the other people who uh, teaches here sometimes, uh, um, her husband, she, she's Patricia Janou, she was teaching in the three month course. Her husband, Charles, um, has lived in India a while and she uh, and he sort of knows the Dalai Lama a little bit and he said that um, His Holiness is, needs to do his practice. You know, that he um, says that his mind is kind of, it's not necessarily ordinary like our minds maybe, but that it needs his four hours a day of practice. So he gets up at four in the morning to maintain the state of mind he has to maintain to be in the position that he's in. He's taken the responsibility to sort of be able to be like that for people, for himself and for others, for the people he feels responsible for. And he's talked about sort of the pain of saying that he actually knows the names of some of the Chinese prison guards who've tortured and killed people that he knows and to send loving kindness to them and to have compassion for them in the way that they think 
Why do they think they should be doing what they're doing? Or why are they trapped in a situation where they have to do that? So four hours a day for him and 12 hours a day for each of us tomorrow, yeah? He does compassion practices and uh, deity visualization practices where, in fact, you stop being the self that Lucy is designating and you sort of, out of recognizing that that self is not your ultimate self, you sort of claim the power to infinitely love and know and stuff like that. So you identify with a different thing and then you sort of dissolve that. But he, you know, it's compassion and selfless service and wisdom. Four hours of it, whatever it is. <laughs> so thinking about this enemy also, um, can we overcome this enemy or this the enmity that we feel to the enemy? Um, this is healing our inner world. Now, if we look at it pragmatically, the enemy that each of us brings here is actually an enemy that's in our memory. Like they're not probably here now, or at least they're not doing the things to us at this moment. So that this imaginary healing of our inner world that we're doing is really, it's kind of weird how important and how crucial it is. That we harm ourselves by laying on ourselves again and again the image of this person as being that, like sort of the way that I've talked humorously about the horrible woman with the white dog, you know, that that's how I think of her. It's sort of like when I, every time I see her, I, th I think kind of the same thing. Well, in more dire situations, we're holding some very terrible things within ourselves that are not really good to hold on to. And is it possible to kind of reimagine how it is that this whole thing functions? I've often thought, you know, like when, in conversations with friends that like sort of when I'm having a bad day or something like that, here's my issues, here's all my stuff, here are my, you know, thing that's going on with the same person yet again. And I think, like, and my career, and my this, and my that, and why I'm lonely, and all these things, and, you know, and I think, but if I, and if I were someone else, I would love my life. You know, there are probably people who would just be so grateful to be able to have my problems, and likewise, that I sort of feel like, well, you know, my friend Martha, I'll have your problems, you can have mine. But how about sort of being able to love one's own life in that way, not capitulating, not taking advantage of other people, but within the context of wishing well for another being. And to think that sometimes those edges are exactly the place where we need to start to meditate on what is difficult, on what limits us. Can we turn toward that suffering in an open-hearted way and go to that place? In a, play, in a way that's unconfused, not defining ourselves as being unworthy because we suffer. Advice to a Tibetan yogini, confess your hidden faults, approach what you find repulsive, help those you think you cannot help. Anything you're attached to, let it go. Go to the places that scare you. That could be the end, I think. There's a, <laughs> I shouldn't say like five minutes. Um, so to try to befriend your enemy, actually I will tell one more story. There's a, the Tibetan master Atisha in the 10th century who brought some of the teachings to Tibet had heard that um, people in Tibet were kind of cheerful and fun. And he thought, well, for his own training, he had to bring along his servant, the absolutely 
sort of unbearable Bengali tea boy. <laughs> everyone said, like, why are you taking that guy with you? He's such a jerk. And he said, well, if everyone's nice to me, I'll have nothing to work with. <laughs> and this, as the story goes, he found plenty of difficult people in Tibet <laughs> that he could also work with. So to be able to go through these fears and pains to the edge of non-separation, as we can start to see that, like, some of the shame that we feel about ourselves as we try to understand the pain of another person and we find sort of the poor little person inside there. It's kind of like looking under the rock of our own self and thinking that like just as we can see into other people, others can see into us. And what would it be like to be able to be open to all of those things? It really does change their nature. It changes the hold that the inner enemy has upon us when we kind of loosen its roots like that. So a chickpea leaps almost over the rim of the pot where it's being boiled. Why are you doing this to me? The cook knocks him down with a ladle. Don't you try to jump out. You think I'm torturing you. I'm giving you flavor. <laughs> so you can mix with the spices and rice and become the lovely vitality for a human being. Remember when you drank rain in the garden? That was for this. Okay, so we'll sit a little bit. Um, maybe a few minutes of questions or comments or observations. Anybody?
Uh-huh. May, may your inner enemy change its mind about who you are and who you're not. I think so. You know, may it be free of all that pain. May it be free of inflicting pain. Do you feel like that would help? Do you think that if you can try it for a second, does it work? That's right, although it, I think it is important to say that like when uh, harm has been done, part of what's, you know, part of what's bad about abusing people is that it makes people think badly about themselves, you know, so I would say that it didn't necessarily come from you, it's, it's the vulnerability that we all share to taking in the wrong information from society or from our parents or whatever that somehow we've kind of taken this belief that this is true and it's not true. I mean, there actually are so many lies that are told, and this was one of the parts of the talk that I cut out, that are told in the culture and within families and things like that, that um, really are very dangerous for people. So it's not you per se, you know? It doesn't belong to you. So I think you could give that one away and leave it back with where it came from. Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, th- I think part of the thing about meta is that it is, it's changing the tape. You know, it's putting in a different, playing a different tune, and to realize that we actually can do that. Um, so that I, I think that when you're um, sending loving kindness to, I would send it to the person who put it in. And then if you find that you're here, kind of hearing that voice to sort of come back to yourself a little bit, that's the part where... Um, as we're saying, like when you take the bigger weights in the gym, like make sure you do the movement correctly <laughs> so that, you know, when it comes up that you don't, because it will bring up some of those things that, um, and, it, and it really remember that it isn't you. Um, another way of thinking about it is that not as necessarily as a tape, you know, it's a tape you don't have to listen to. Um, or you don't have to take in, or as if maybe it's like a train and you can choose to get on it or not, or you can kind of choose to let the train go by and not hop on and let the train take you wherever the train is going to go. You know, what you do is you stay with the metaphrases because they, in themselves, because they hold that kind of healing meaning 
they form a protection for your mind. If, you could, if your mind kind of goes inside the phrases, then it's kind of contained within that wish. So that the, the uh, it's as if, you know, you put, you slip the fork inside the broccoli until the handle disappears. And then, you know what I mean? It's sort of like you really sort of try to unify your mind with the phrases and the meaning of the phrases, sometimes by listening to the sound of them or whatever it takes to engage with them more. I think so, yeah. May I be free of, may I be free of, maybe I would say may I be free of the inner critic um, and see if you want it because it's sort of to like make it into a person that lives inside you or something like that would be a little weird. Like it's, it's almost like imagining that it would be lifted like stain remover or something like that. Like may I be without that thing. Um, Sort of there's a wholeness of yourself rather than sort of like holding the presence of that thing. And I think that might be um, useful for you too. That same thing of feeling like it really is like something or someone inside you. Like imagine yourself without that and the freedom and happiness of being without it. Right. Well, it it seems that the metta practice kind of brings it brings both things um, into your experience, both the times when things feel very clear and you're developing like real kindness and the times when something comes up that you kind of have to sort of soften with. You know, when you, you start feeling like you're sort of belaboring the metta through an oppressive state that you kind of have to acknowledge and open it, open up to it and say, well, you know, this is here. And how can I hold this? You know, and sometimes that's sort of the quick sort of the quick moment of almost like a vipassana metta acknowledgement, like, you know, this is painful, I'm suffering. You know, and then you can turn it back to yourself. Like, to, to be able to acknowledge I'm suffering in, a, in that way that's sort of very loving and isn't reacting to the feelings that you're having and quite, you're saying, like, I'm bad or I shouldn't be feeling this way. It's just like, this is really hard. Oh, I'm sorry. He said, um, he said that I s- seem to be saying two different things, one of them being to sort of get away from uh, sort of difficult feelings by emphasizing the metta and kind of unifying yourself with the phrases, and the other one is sort of opening to sort of troubled feelings or difficulties. That, you know, and that he said that he's worked with both, and I think that that is kind of how it is, that sometimes you, you know, it sort of depends what you can do in a moment of practice, like you, re- you sort of refine the metta phrases and your metta practice with sort of the um, trying to be very close within the practice, but sometimes it's necessary to sort of open your heart to something that's going on in you or in another person and say like, um, with all of this, may we be happy. Yeah, that's where that sort of bittersweet uh, human condition feeling comes in, like yes, you know, there's, if there weren't pain in life, we wouldn't be here and we wouldn't have to wish that we would be well because we would just be well. There wouldn't be the wishing. So within all of that, how can we be happy given life? Can we see it 
beautifully or will we be trapped in some of its uglier places? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.